ourselves out of the recording or not. But um, uh. so I don't know if anybody's ever gotten um, uh, a product or an item, and you read the the instructions or little notes on it, and you realize that it just doesn't read right. Something about the person who was reading the uh, um, the, the original language and trying to, to translate and interpret those instructions into English got things really wrong, and it doesn't quite make sense. Now, uh, right interpretation is important, um, and uh, it, it shows itself uh, in, in other ways, things that are of more consequence and of a bigger deal than just whether your instructions on how to uh, work your crock pot or that handy dandy uh, sushi bazooka that you got for Christmas. Um, uh, there's a, a growing uh, problem in many court systems where uh, people come in who, who aren't able to, to speak or fully understand the English language nor the technical terminology of the legal and court system, and uh, they find themselves in a difficult situation. And so uh, um, sometimes the courts, instead of having authorized um, and uh, dedicated uh, interpreters and translators, sometimes just get anybody who raises their hand who can speak the defendant's language. And sometimes that ends up not going very well for the person. Um, there's been, uh, there was one uh, account where uh, the person was trying to, to communicate what had happened. And what they said, that the defendant said, is I walked up to the table to have a chat. And the next thing I know, the person got angry. And when we went outside, they attacked me. Well, the interpretation, that was spoken in, in another language. The interpreter heard that and to communicate it to the court said, what the defendant did is I walked over to their table to start trouble. And then they got mad and went outside and attacked me. Right interpretation and wrong interpretation can have significant consequences if not done accurately. And uh, in other instances, there was a, a, a 911 call. Uh, the person on the, the phone did not speak English. The, the 911 operator understood a little bit of what was going on but interpreted what was said wrongly. The person on the phone said, my wife says she can't breathe. What the 911 operator wrote down and interpreted and communicated to the uh, EMS people was that she was short of breath, not that she couldn't breathe. They gave the address of the location of where this uh, emergency was happening. The 911 operator interpreted it wrong and gave the wrong address, and it took over half an hour before the ambulance got there. By the time they got there, the wife was brain dead and she ended up dying. See, when things are not interpreted and understood correctly, it can have drastic and dire consequences. Um, not so much, although it's important in the court of law, it's important with a, a 911 and emergencies like that, but what we're going to look at and talk about this morning is probably the thing that we must interpret and understand accurately and rightly. And if we do not understand and interpret it correctly, there are not just consequences now in this life, 
but there are eternal consequences. What we're talking about is understanding the person and work of Jesus, who he is, what it means that he was born, that he entered into our world, that he lived a life here among us, that he suffered and he died. If we do not interpret that rightly and understand what it means that Jesus came, there could be serious and significant consequences eternally. Um, over the, the, these four weeks of Advent, Advent meaning coming, uh, us looking back to Jesus' first coming and anticipating and looking forward to His second coming, um, we are looking at four different songs that Luke records for us in his account of Jesus' life and teachings. Last week, we looked at Mary's song. This week, we're looking at a song by a man named Zechariah. Uh, Zechariah is the father of John the Baptist, um, one who was a forerunner of Jesus to prepare uh, the way for the people of God. Um, in fact, an angel appeared to, uh, to his mom and dad as well and says this about uh, uh, John being born. Uh, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear a son. She was old and barren. Um, it was nobody was thinking they were going to have a, a, a child. And you shall call his name John and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink strong wine, must not drink, drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord, their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of their fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Um, what we are going to uh, see here uh, this morning is once uh, Zechariah, uh, once John is born, this is Zechariah's song of response and praise to God for uh, the birth of John, but also for the coming of the Christ. And we want to see how what guidance Zechariah give us on rightly interpreting the coming of Jesus. So if you would, let's look at uh, Luke chapter 1. We're looking at verses 67 through 79 this morning. Um, if you're following along in one of the black Bibles there in your seats, this is on page 856. Um, so if you would, follow along with me uh, as we hear from the Word of God. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. For he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high 
to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for uh, uh, You giving us uh, the right interpretation um, of Your coming, uh, of Your life, of Your death, and pray that You would uh, guide us this morning um, as we hear from You. Uh, In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, what we're seeing uh, Luke do through this account of Jesus' life and teaching is Luke isn't just wanting to give us facts and history, although he is doing that, but Luke is also wanting to give us a right interpretation of those facts and seeing what is going on. Wanting us to rightly interpret here early in this account of Jesus' life the importance of his coming. Um, And what we're going to see that Luke is seeking to show us in this passage is that interpreting rightly the coming of Jesus means that he has come to bring salvation from enemies, salvation for service without fear, and salvation in the forgiveness of sins. Um, First, we want to look at how Jesus' coming brings salvation from enemies. Um, But first, notice we... We have an authorized and capable interpreter to let us know and inform us uh, how we should interpret and understand who Jesus is and why he came. Notice, this isn't just some random old guy who's happy about his son being born and writes a song. Notice what it tells us in verse 67. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. What that means is that what we're reading here is not just a random man's song that Luke thought was good to write down. This is God speaking through an authorized spokesperson. God, the Holy Spirit, giving us through Zechariah the right and proper interpretation and understanding of who Jesus is why he entered into the world and what he is accomplishing through that coming. So it is very important for us to listen to Zechariah, to listen to the Holy Spirit speaking through him, and to understand rightly that this is the proper interpretation of Jesus' coming. So let's look and see. First, Zechariah is pointing to us and explaining to us that interpreting Jesus coming rightly means that we would understand that Jesus has come to bring salvation from enemies. To bring salvation from enemies. Notice that Zechariah is really focused on this idea and concept that Jesus coming means that we are going to be saved from our enemies. Look in verse 71. The whole first half of the song is really about this. He, he, He... Verses 68 on down, he he builds with this and then he says that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Then further on down in 74, he brings it up again that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies. Zachariah seems to understand that there's something about the coming of this promised one that his son will prepare the way for. But that Jesus' coming means the deliverance and salvation from enemies. Uh, In fact, it's so much on Zechariah's mind and so much a part of the promises that God has given 
that Zechariah is not at a loss to grab and draw on many multiple promises and language throughout the Old Testament that spoke of the promised one coming and how the promised one coming would involve salvation from enemies. Notice that back up in verse 68. Blessed be the, the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. That is language that he's drawing on, remembering about how God acted and worked through the Exodus, the grand big event of redemption and salvation for the Old Testament people of God. He's referring and thinking back of the promises that God gave to deliver his people from the oppression of their enemies at the time being uh, the Egyptians and to deliver and save them. And in fact, the, the rest of the Old Testament, the prophets continue to draw on that language and talk about this visiting and redeeming God who will once again come and deliver his people. Zechariah is tying in and buying into that. And uh, on, in verse uh, 69, as it, as it goes on, raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. This is drawing on prophetic language. This language of horn isn't like an a, a instrument horn, but think of like a giant horn of an ox that uses this imagery of power to defend and to protect, uh, to guard and deliver his people. The Old Testament is full of the prophets of God describing that this defending one would come from the line of David who would come to deliver his people from their enemies and from those who oppress and assault them. And then again, notice Zechariah drawing on all of this Old Testament language that's focused on the deliverance and the salvation of God's people from their enemies that he says, uh, show the mercy promised us to our fathers to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. On and on, the Old Testament seems really focused and drawing in and giving these promises and these hopes that when the promised one comes, it will involve salvation from enemies. God is focused on that. And Zechariah is saying you will miss the right understanding of why Jesus came. If you don't understand that part of why Jesus came is to bring salvation from enemies. Well, if it's such a big deal for the Old Testament, if it's such a big deal for Zechariah, then we need to understand what that means. Who who are these enemies? That's an important question. Notice that. The first enemy mentioned in the Old Testament is in Genesis chapter 3. Is Satan, using a serpent as a mouthpiece, deceives our first parents, Adam and Eve, causing them to question and doubt the goodness of God and His promises and His provisions. But notice how we see Him portrayed as an enemy in the garden, but as God speaks to Satan and he speaks to God's people, he talks about how Satan will continue to be an enemy of God's people. Look in chapter three of Genesis. Uh, the first thing that God says here in this uh, this 
these curses and promises in verse 14 of chapter 3 of Genesis. Yahweh God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. It's not talking about snakes used to have legs and then they lost them and now they're crawling on the ground. It's talking about defeat, humility. You have been, you're licking dust now because you will be conquered. And notice, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, one particular offspring, will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That bruising of the head is, is mortal, bringing to an end defeat. What God is saying is one is coming who will address and deal with this great and grand enemy of God's people. And when he comes, he will defeat and conquer him and deliver God's people from him forever. The coming of Jesus is the fulfillment of this promise. The coming of Jesus means that Satan the enemy of God's people is and will be defeated. But the scriptures also mention uh, another another enemy. Uh, in fact, it, it talks about the, the last enemy that will be defeated is death. In 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 15, verses 24 to 26, listen how, how Paul talks about it in this way. Uh, when uh, he's, he, he's looking forward to Jesus coming and he says, uh, and his, uh, um, uh, Christ is the first fruits, then it has coming those who belong to Christ. And then he goes and he says, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God, uh, the kingdom to God, the father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. The coming of Jesus means not just the defeat of the enemy of Satan, but also the enemy of death. Death is done away with due to the coming and entering of Jesus into the world. He will deliver his people from the great enemy of death. But from the speaking of the first enemy that comes about and speaking of this last enemy to be defeated, there's talk of a whole lot of other enemies, though, too, in the Old Testament. We see this this spiritual enemy, Satan, and, and this this other effect of the fall, death is defeated. But in the middle, all throughout the rest of the scripture, when God is talking about his enemies and the enemies of his people, he is speaking of humanity. Men, women, the kingdoms of men that rebel against God, against his rule in the world and who assault his people. Notice uh, the, the psalm that is quoted most in the New Testament is Psalm 2. And it is not a pretty psalm. Listen to what David writes and how it, this perspective on Jesus, which is, this is what it's looking forward to, is the one who is the conquering and delivering one. Why did the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? These are real nations. These are real people who rebel against God. They're doing this in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed 
or we could say his Messiah, his Christ, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. Jesus laughs at their rebellion. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. Yahweh said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned. O rulers of the earth, serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. When Jesus comes, there will be horrible implications for physical, material, real life people and nations who continue to exist in rebellion against him. Jesus will dash them into pieces. He will break them like a potter's vessel. He will come as the conquering king. The implications of this is, uh, is pretty staggering. Jesus is coming to establish He's entering into the world was the first step. Although he was in Mary's belly at the time, he was the king of all things. He was coming to establish his kingdom rule over everything. He is the one true king. That means We need to understand rightly if he's coming, if he's the one true king and his coming means he will defeat his enemies and save his people from his enemies, then we we need to understand and know. Am I one of these enemies? Notice Zacharias says there are those who are God's enemies and there are those who aren't. Do you see it in this passage? In verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed who? His people. There are those who are God's people, who he is acting on behalf of, who he is going to come and save from who? Enemies. We already seen how Zechariah points to those enemies, those who hate them. And if you're hating God's people, you're hating God. You see, to interpret rightly the coming of Jesus means that we will understand that as Jesus comes, he will come saving, but also conquering and defeating. And to rightly interpret and understand uh, means that we, as God's people, our proper response will be at the not just looking back at the the first coming of Jesus, but the second coming of Jesus will be a rejoicing, a celebrating that Jesus is coming and defeating Satan, our great enemy, defeating death, our great enemy, 
and delivering us from those who are oppressing. The nations and the people of this world who continue to rebel against God and kill and murder and bring suffering on those who would follow Christ. We're to rejoice in that. We're to hope in that. We're to long in that. But the other response to everyone else, for those who aren't hoping and trusting in Jesus, to rightly interpret and understand that Jesus entered into the world means He is the one true King. And the right question to ask is, am I an enemy of Jesus? Not, do you consider yourself an enemy of Jesus? Does Jesus consider you his enemy? Because really what makes a difference is not whether you think you're an enemy or not, but from God's definition and understanding, are you one of his enemies? Do you see him as being your king? Are you submitting to Jesus as the one true king of all things? Are you trusting in his life and his death and his resurrection for you? If not, it doesn't matter if you're nice to Christians. It doesn't matter if you go to church. It doesn't matter if you celebrate Christmas and Easter. It doesn't matter if you're nice and give money to the church. You could still be considered an enemy of Jesus. And when he comes... He will bring salvation for his people and punishment for his enemies. Interpreting Jesus coming rightly has eternal consequences, Zechariah would tell us. But why? Why is God coming to save his people from their enemies? What's the point? Remember, as we looked through the book of Leviticus, and I've brought this up over and over again, when God saves and redeems his people, he, he saves us from something. Here, Zechariah right now is focusing on us being saved from our enemies. But he also saves us to something, to a relationship with God, that we would be his people But notice also, we're saved for something. And in Zechariah's explanation of it here, what we're saved for is, notice in verse 73 and 74. The oath he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. The reason God is saving his people is He's saving us for service, saving us for service without fear. God isn't Jesus coming into the world isn't just to to bring salvation from enemies, but he's saving his people for service without fear. But the interesting thing, though, is. If you're afraid. A lot of times it's hard to serve God, it's hard to obey and follow him. Um, recently, Greta has been deathly afraid of being alone. She's been having bad dreams, and so much so that that if we leave the room and she's in there by herself, she will stop whatever she's doing and follow us. If I tell her to finish up her breakfast, I'm going to go get go brush my teeth and get ready to leave for work. 
she will not do what I've asked her, which is to finish her breakfast. She will follow me upstairs and kind of hide in the corner. If I tell her to go upstairs and go get your clothes on and get ready for school, she'll just kind of stand downstairs and not obey and do what I've asked her. And I'll ask her why. She says it's because she's she's afraid. And so I mentioned to her, because there's this kid's Bible verse song that we sing from the Psalms. When I am afraid, I will trust in you. I said, Greta, don't you remember that song? And she's like, yeah, but I don't know how to. How to what? What don't you know how to do? She says, how to trust. That's interesting. Trust is important in the midst of fear. So I told her, I'm like, Greta, Jesus is always with you. You don't need to be afraid. And what it means to trust is that even when it do- doesn't seem like he's there, we go into difficult and hard situations and we obey Jesus, believing what he's told us to do. So what we've been trying to do recently is we'll go upstairs and I'll have Greta brush her teeth, but I'll stand outside in the hallway so she can't see me. I'll be like, Greta, can you hear me? Daddy's still here. Am I in the room with you? No. Can you hear me though? Am I still around? Yes. Am I coming back? Trying to teach her that even though I'm not there, I'm coming back. It's okay. Jesus is the same way. For us, we need to understand and realize that the salvation that God is bringing, the work that Jesus is doing, he's come to deliver us from our enemies and save us so that we might serve him without fear. The removal of the fear, the trusting and resting and relying on him is important because a lot of times it's it's hard to obey. It's hard to serve When we are afraid, what Zechariah is saying and telling us here is that the deliverance, the salvation that Jesus brings, the coming and him entering into the world means that our redemption, our salvation is so secure and so true and so real that we can live and serve God now without fear. We can trust him. Notice that's what it says in 74. We being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. What does this service look like? Notice what it says. It's a service that's characterized by holiness and righteousness. God has saved and redeemed us to serve him without fear in living lives that are set apart, set apart in this world that we're living differently. We're holy people that look different from the world, that look like our God who has redeemed and saved us. We live righteous lives, lives that are lived out in conformity to his law and his good character that's demonstrated in the world. But. How hard is that to do? How hard is it as God's people to live holy and righteous lives in this world? It can be scary, can it? It can be difficult to live out and obey our God in this world, especially if we're not exactly sure if his redemption and his deliverance is 
uh, sufficient. Israel had this struggle. I've been reading uh, in Numbers in the mornings recently. And to see the people of Israel have just been delivered from Egypt. Their enemies, the most powerful nation in the world, has been conquered. And God says, all right, now I want you to go into the promised land. And the people on the heels of this great act of redemption send some spies into the promised land. They look at the circumstances around them, the big uh, Canaanites, and they're looking at themselves and their interpretation of the situation and their circumstances says, we will never be able to do this. Let's go back to Egypt. Their interpretation of God's great work of redemption for them in the past does not translate into them living holy and righteous lives without fear. Their fear overwhelms them in the face of God's great work for them, and they are not able to move forward in trust and reliance and dependence upon Him. But Zechariah is saying that the work of God, of Jesus entering in and coming into the world, is so uh, much a a confidence and a surety. Remember, just like... uh, Mary did. Zechariah is speaking as if this has already happened. He's defeated the enemies. He's conquered and delivered his people. But Rome's still in control. Satan is still roaming around. People are still dying. But Zechariah is saying the surety of Jesus' work and coming into the world is enough that now. We should live out our lives now. It should make a difference now. Notice what he says. That we'll serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. It begins now. There's something about the first coming of Jesus entering into the world. And the surety of the the work that he accomplished in delivering his people from their enemies And us also looking forward with the surety and the confidence of Jesus' second coming, that He will come again to fulfill all of that and make all things right, that Zechariah is saying to interpret that rightly means we live now trusting and relying on our God without fear, living lives of holiness and righteousness for the time in between the first coming and the second coming. How many times do we wrongly interpret our circumstances and our situations? You notice what Zechariah says. He's saying that we will serve our God without fear. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say the coming of Jesus means you have been saved so that you can serve God without difficulty. You can serve God without cost. You can serve God without suffering. You can serve God without persecution. You can serve God without rejection. He doesn't say any of that. What he's promised is that you can serve him without fear. Because of what Jesus has done. What is it in your life and mine right now as we look at our circumstances we completely forget about the surety of Jesus' deliverance of us and saving us from our enemies to serve Him without fear, that we look at what's going on, we're overwhelmed with fear. The fear of rejection, the fear of a loss of a job, the fear of not being accepted by this group of people. 
that we struggle to live lives of holiness and righteousness, completely forgetting about the great work that when Jesus entered into the world at the first advent and when He's coming at the second means that everything that we fear has been accomplished in Christ. And we can rest now. But maybe you, like Greta and like me, say, but I don't know how to trust. I don't know how to do that. Zechariah says, look to Jesus. Look to the first coming of Jesus. Look to the second coming of Jesus. And know that He has saved you from your enemies. Every single one of them. And He has saved you so that you can serve Him without fear. But the last thing that Zechariah points us to is not just that we're saved from our enemies, not just that we're saved so that we can save for service without fear, but... Jesus' coming brings salvation in the forgiveness of sins. Back in, in verse 76, notice what Zechariah says. And you, child, now he's speaking about, uh, about his son John who has been born. This is kind of the, the, the prophecy part of, of what's going on. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of sins. Salvation comes in the forgiveness of sins. Notice, Zechariah is talking about this preparatory work that John must do, preparing the, the way of the Lord, preparing the way for the Lord here is actually a reference to Jesus coming. So preparing his way. What does that involve? Well, look back over in verses 16 and 17 when the angel appears to Zechariah as he's serving in the temple. This is what he says about John's great work. Uh, for he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink. He'll be filled with the spirit from the mother's womb. And then in verse 16, it says this. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord, their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. He's turning the hearts, many of the, the hearts of many of the people of Israel to the Lord. That means that at this point, there are many people in Israel whose hearts are not inclined towards the Lord. They are not looking to, hoping in, resting in the promised one who would come. In other words, they're enemies. They're enemies of God. And enemies of his king. There are people who outwardly would describe themselves as being a part of the people. But in Zechariah's evaluation of it, in God's evaluation of it, I need to send John to prepare because there are many enemies among my people whose hearts are turned away. Remember, we've seen this in Acts as well as we've been going through that God is describing those who have rejected Jesus 
who were depending and relying on themselves or their religion and not hoping in Christ as their Redeemer and their Savior, they are described not as the people, but as enemies of God. But do you notice what this means, though? God is sending a messenger to prepare enemies, to turn enemies from the way they're living now, another way to cling and hope and depend on him. Notice what Zechariah says. In verse 76 and following, you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. It's not just John who's going to be preparing and doing this great work, but notice in verse 78, the sunrise shall visit us from on high. That is reference as well to Jesus. Um, in other translations, you may have seen it as day spring. That kind of shows up in uh, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. But the sunrise is coming and notice what he's doing. He's giving light to those in darkness, to those who are in the shadow of death. He's guiding the feet, their feet to the way of peace. Jesus entering into the world is bringing light of salvation. He's bringing hope and deliverance to those who are in darkness, who don't know what's going on, who are suffering. And he's going to bring and guide them to the way of peace. Enemies do not experience peace. But Zechariah is saying, because Jesus has come, it is possible to find salvation in the forgiveness of your sins, meaning that enemies can become part of the people. And Zechariah says, if we're going to interpret this rightly, we must understand it as being because of the tender mercy of our God. Look in verse 78. To give knowledge of the salvation to, to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. The coming of Jesus entering into the world puts on display for us the mercy of our God who would pursue and come to enemies and let them know there is a way that you can find salvation and deliverance. You can find salvation from your sins and go from being an enemy to being a son. This is through the work of Jesus coming into the world who didn't come just to give us a model of a life of a way to live, who didn't come just to teach nice and good things and show us what sacrificial living would be. Jesus entered into this world to die for sinners. And the way that enemies become sons is through hoping and trusting in the provision that the tender mercy of our God has given for his people. If you're still hung up and wrestling over the question that I asked early in the sermon and just kind of left hanging, are you an enemy? God says, there is hope for you. Interpret rightly. Jesus has come to provide deliverance and forgiveness for you. Turn and look and hope in Him. 
back in the 50s, uh, a group of missionaries, um, Jim Elliott, uh, Nate Saint, went to Ecuador to reach uh, people who did not know of Jesus with the gospel. The tribe that they went to was a murderous tribe who uh, the way that they dealt with stuff is they just killed other people. They began to make contact with them slowly over time and the first opportunity that they were able to land and have person-to-person interaction, five men went to meet this tribe and every single one of them were slaughtered and killed by this tribe. The, the wives of these men, overwhelmed by the free mercy and grace of Jesus that would make the pathway for an enemy to become a son and a daughter, said, we are not going to view these people as our enemies. We're going to go to and pursue them with the good news of the message of the gospel. And they continue to pursue them. And love them and share the good news of the God who makes enemies friends. And that tribe began to come to know Christ. So much so that those wives and their children moved to live with that tribe. And Steve Saint, one of the sons of Nate Saint, met a man there in the tribe began to get to know him. This man came to know Jesus. And time came that it turned out that this man was the man who killed his dad. The one who speared him to death. And in their tribal way, once you figure out who who has killed a member of your family, you're to then enact revenge. And Steve says, I'm not going to do it. Because Jesus has forgiven you. And instead, he forgave, he forgave this guy. This guy came to know Jesus. Steve was adopted into this guy's family. This guy was adopted into his. And, uh, and they began to live and do life together. This tribesman who killed his dad would come and visit him in the States. And they would celebrate and eat together as a family. And it's interesting, a USA Today reporter reporting about this story was amazed and dumbfounded by the response. And the reporter said, all right, this guy kills your dad. Forgiveness? Maybe. Maybe I could understand that. Maybe I could get to the point where I could do that. But love? Loving someone who acted like that, that is morbid, was the response. See, what the USA Today reporter fails to understand is seeing how the transforming love and mercy of our God who would enter into our world changes one's heart to where we're able to extend forgiveness because of the forgiveness that's been extended to us. What the Saint family and the Elliot family and those other men were doing was reflecting the incarnation and the good news and the message of the gospel to this tribe because they had experienced the same thing from Jesus and from their Heavenly Father. Zechariah is calling us to interpret rightly the coming of Jesus and realizing that He has come and He has saved us from our enemies. He has come and saved us that we can serve now without fear. And He has come to save us in the forgiveness of our sins through His life and His death and resurrection 
that we as His enemies now are a part of His family. That may be a morbid thought to some, but in Zechariah's language and what should be ours is blessed be our great and merciful God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the good news of the Gospel. We thank You that we as Your enemies can become a part of Your family. We thank You for uh, Jesus, Your work, You entering into humanity and to earth. Uh, we pray that You would continue to apply the good news of the Gospel, that we would interpret rightly and respond rightly. Out of these truths, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. As Jesus was on His way to save His people, He was eating with His disciples, uh, and He took bread and He broke it.